friends, we, as I said, we wrap up our sermon series, We Believe. We've been walking through the Apostles' Creed, and, and we've, we've kind of walked through the three main major the, the sections of, of the Apostles' Creed, uh, declaring our belief, professing our belief in God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, what, what now, though? What now? I'd like to read a passage from uh, the book of James. Uh, James is a singularly unique book in the Bible. Um, we'll dig into just why that is, but I'm going to read from chapter 2. I'll read verses 14 through 26, but hear these words of James. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good, even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without a spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Will you pray with me? Holy God, we praise you for your scriptures. And God, we praise you for the ways that they challenge us, that they challenge us to to live more fully into the life that you've created us for. But God, help us to encounter you, the fullness of who you are. Just build up that faith within us that we might go out into this world and make you known. But God, transform us in this time. This we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So as I said, we've been walking through the Apostles' Creed over this last month, looking at these most foundational beliefs that we hold as followers of Jesus. And the the Apostles' Creed, right, it, it points us directly to the triune God revealed in Scripture, and and it is faith, trust, belief, all words that we can use interchangeably. It's faith, trust, and belief in this God that is the basis of the salvation that he offers us and that he offers the entire world. When we recite the creed and profess our belief in God, though, is that it? You know, is that all it takes to be a Christian? Or is there something more? We talked about belief throughout this, this time, just the nature of belief. And when we talk about belief, we're talking about trusting in the witness of another to a person or event that, that we ourselves did not see or experience firsthand. 
When we say that we believe in God, we are saying that we trust the witness of Christ, of the Holy Spirit, of of Holy Scripture, and of the church throughout the last 2,000 years, even those walking faithfully in, in Christ's footsteps today. This simple trust, simple trust, is at the root of the salvation that we are offered in Jesus. You know, and we talk about how, in Paul's words, salvation is by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Many are content to leave it there because, you know, everyone knows, of course, what faith belief is, right? You know, we often hear it talked about as, as mental, rational ascent um, or simply reciting a creed or, or it's just about showing up on Sunday for an hour. And we know for sure that it's not works, Right? Well, the book of James, as we just read, has a lot to say on this matter. And unlike any other book in the New Testament, James does not mince words. You know exactly what James is saying. You know, there's there's no kind of missing the context with James. It's just right out there. And he is crystal clear about what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ. So what does he say? Well, in this passage from chapter 2, James states very clearly that faith without deeds or works is dead. He's not messing around here. He says that faith, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. What good is it, he says, to say to someone, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but don't provide for their immediate physical needs? Show me your faith without deeds, he says, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Then he says this, again, not mincing words. He says, you believe that there is one God, good, great. Even the demons believe that and shudder. James then gives examples from the Old Testament of Abraham and Rahab making their faith known by their actions. Faith accompanied by action. And then ends by saying that having faith without works, deeds, or action is the same as having a body without a spirit. You know, without that which animates, without that which gives life. James is writing with concern that these early Christians who were fleeing violence and persecution following the martyrdom of Stephen, he was concerned that they did not forget themselves, that they didn't forget who they were, that they didn't forget what God had called them to in Christ Jesus, that they had had entered into a new life as new creations, that dispersion and struggle do not free the followers of Jesus from the obligation to practice what James calls pure religion, true religion. Poverty does not negate generosity. Trials and temptations do not make anger, harsh words, sin, or violence permissible. Political, economic, and cultural strife do not preclude us from loving our neighbor. We cannot simply profess belief, you know, recite a creed, or give rational assent to God revealed in Jesus. Even the demons do that. We cannot simply do these things and then just call ourselves Christian. That's why I like, instead of saying Christian, I like saying followers of Jesus. 
Because the word follower implies action. We're walking in the footsteps of Jesus. But for the last 500-ish years, there's been a split in the universal church about this very thing. Uh, Many of you may know the history. The Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, led by Martin Luther, was a movement to reclaim the true nature of salvation, right? Of it being by God's grace through faith and not attainable by works alone. We affirm that. But he, he was seeking to reclaim it from the abuses of what the Roman Catholic Church had become at that time. You know, think indulgences. Think, you know, paying money so you could receive a free pass, so that you could turn that free pass in as like, oh, here's my good work. I don't have to worry about doing this good work. You can just have it. But the Reformation was a necessary corrective to all of these abuses. In the attempt to correct those abuses, however... I think Martin Luther and others, they took things to the opposite extreme, emphasizing faith over and against works to the point where even Luther himself, he rejected the book of James. He said it shouldn't be part of the Bible. He hated it. But the result after 500 years, 500 years, is that faith and works, deeds, and action have been viewed by many as just irreconcilable, right? Even directly opposed to one another when it comes to salvation. And in many ways, I think the divide is even wider than it was 500 years ago. And the results of this have been, let's be honestly, disastrous for the universal church, right? Not only just disunity across the board, although as of, you know, 30 years ago, we've come to some conclusion that we can agree on the nature of salvation. And the agreement between the Roman Catholic Church and many Protestants is that salvation is God's work, right? It's the work of God, that it is by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But we are judged by our works. And that just tells me that there's an inseparability to faith and works. But for the last 500 years, it's just been this disastrous effect. It's led to a purely private version of faith. You know, a faith that goes to church on Sunday, maybe sits quietly on their own. A faith that, you know, is often left inside the church building when you leave. The latest numbers I found suggest that 65% of the American population professes to be Christian, which is kind of astounding because not too many years ago it was like 80%. But about 65% of the U.S. population professes to be Christian. And this may sound a little harsh, but looking around you in your day-to-day, as you just go about your life, do you really think that 65% of the American population is Christian? Again, maybe a little harsh, But do you really think 65% of the American population is Christian? You know, how can we tell, right? How can we tell? Action. Action. That's how we tell. The truth is that faith and works cannot be separated. Cannot be separated. Two sides of the same coin. Faith is not faith 
if it is not lived out through works of love, mercy, peace, etc. By witnessing to Christ, by living as Christ. For, for James, faith being actively lived out looks like loving one's neighbor. Simple as that. Loving one's neighbor. In the first part of chapter 2, he gives this clear example of what faith in action looks like. And it is clear from this first part of the chapter that neighbor, for these early Christians, meant the poor. James' concern is that these early Christians were showing favoritism to the wealthy and the put-together, but neglecting the poor. In the first verse of chapter 2, James says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Now, our our English descriptions of the idea of, of favoritism often come across as a bit benign, kind of weak. You know, when we think of favoritism, we typically think of partiality or respect for people. But how does partiality or respect for people call into question whether we truly believe in Jesus, right? Favoritism is far more sinister, I think, far more threatening than our simple personal preferences. The Greek word rendered favoritism is a word that combines two other words, The first word refers to the face or outward appearance of someone or something. The second word means to take hold of or to seize. So favoritism then means to seize upon the face of something. So acts of favoritism are those where we seize upon or take hold of only the surface appearance of someone or something. Scripture reminds us, though, that God does not take hold of appearances in his judgments. God is not seized by the face of things as he extends his love to all people. For followers of Jesus to cling to appearances, being seized only by the surface of things, demonstrates that we are not imitating God's way of doing things. So James, he tells a story about a rich person and a poor person entering into a worship setting, and of these early Christians judging by appearances, treating the wealthy person with respect and neglecting the poor person. Instead of showing favoritism, James calls Christians to what he calls the royal law, to love your neighbor as yourself. He's saying that the poor are more than what they lack, and the wealthy are more than what they have. He's admonishing us to treat everyone as though the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Rather than judging by appearances, we are called to love and mercy. And mercy, James says, triumphs over judgment. But after his teaching on favoritism, that's where we get to this passage that I read for today, he goes right into talking about faith without works being dead. So there's this correlation, right? Faith in action is loving your neighbor. And loving your neighbor has to do with identifying and caring for those on the margins. Simply put, James is saying that faith lived out is loving your neighbor as yourself. And not with just words or well wishes, right? Not just by saying, go in peace, keep warm and well fed. 
but with action. Action. Last week, we talked about the Holy Spirit's work of, of equipping and empowering us to live as citizens of heaven. Citizens of heaven. You know, bringing heaven to our little spot in the world, setting things right in our little spot in the world, enabled by the Holy Spirit. That means that living as a citizen of heaven requires a faith in the triune God that is an active faith, a personal yet public faith, a faith that can be seen by the world, a faith that does not seize on outward appearances, not making unfounded judgments about other people, but one that loves them as you love yourself, rich or poor, young or old, black or white, male or female. The self-giving love of Jesus is the common witness of the universal church in the world. We want to talk about unity. Here it is. It's found in Jesus Christ. The sacrificial love poured out on the cross, made effective by his resurrection. This love is also Ozark UMC's witness in our community. This love is also your witness at work, with your family at home, or anywhere else you find yourself. If, as we profess, God is the Lord Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, creator of all there is, if Jesus gave himself for us in sacrificial love, if Jesus experienced resurrection, and if the Holy Spirit is continually at work to empower and enable us, and if we, through the Spirit, will experience bodily resurrection, totally renewed, totally made new, and will experience the renewal of all creation, then we have work to do, right? Our faith, our trust, our belief must be lived. You know, I think we just had a conversation uh, before service, you know, talking about why some folks just don't believe. And I, I, I have friends who, you know, can grasp all of the rational arguments, can, can, can make sense of all of that. But what they really want to know is can it be lived? You know, they're, they're, they're really like, they're seeking to know a, they want to see a Christian, right? To know that it's true. I think about this, uh, Shane Claiborne, he was an author, he wrote some books in the early 2000s, has, a, has an amazing witness. But he was at this point at, one po- at one point in his life, you know, out of college, he was just struggling with his faith and he was wondering, are there any Christians in the world? You know, 65% of the U.S. proclaims, but he was just, are there any Christians in the world? And he had heard about this, this, this woman named Mother Teresa. He knew about Mother Teresa. So he said, fine, I'm going to go, and I'm going to go spend some time with Mother Teresa. So he went to Calcutta, India, and he spent quite, quite a bit of time with Mother Teresa, just watching her, doing what she did. And it was in that that, she, that he finally, he says, met a Christian. And it wasn't because she said flowery things or professed, or walked around reciting the creed, but it was because of the way she loved and loved the most seemingly unlovable people on the earth. The world wants to see Christians, followers of Jesus. The world needs to see followers of Jesus. 
The world needs to see us living out what we profess when we gather together each week. I think in that comes about the transformation of the world. Reformed, remade, renewed. Us human beings renewed in the image of God, creation renewed to its original glory. My prayer for us as a community, as we wrap up this sermon series, my prayer is that we could, with all integrity, all integrity, say that we believe. And that the world outside these doors would see it through our love for each other and for all of our neighbors. And we know how how broad of a definition neighbor is. May the world see it. And may we be empowered by the the Holy Spirit to, to fully live it. Amen. the king.